I'd like to talk to you this evening about, since this is Wednesday night, we call this prayer meeting night. This is prayer time and uh, Bible study time like we do on Wednesdays. And because of that, I'd like to talk to you about somebody's prayer in the Bible. Just a few weeks ago, a couple months ago, I had my attention drawn to a passage in Ephesians. You can go ahead and turn over to Ephesians chapter 3, if you will. Ephesians chapter 3. Now, I had my attention drawn to a prayer of the Apostle Paul here in Ephesians chapter 3. For the sake of time, I'm going to get right into that if I can this evening and uh, take a look at this prayer of the Apostle Paul for his friends there in the church at Ephesus. Paul's prayer is what I'd like to look at with you this evening. Now, when you stop and think about it, we all would like to have somebody that really loves us and cares about us that will pray for us. We all want and need somebody that will pray for us. Well, how would you like to have somebody like the Apostle Paul to pray for you? How would you like to know that somewhere in your life there is an Apostle Paul that loves you enough to pray for you? Can you imagine this church having the Apostle Paul that would pray for them by name and in specific ways and for specific things? I would love to have the Apostle Paul to know my name and to whisper that name in prayer for me today. But there are others along the way that God has given us, good, godly, Christian friends, and some family members too, that have whispered our name many, many times in prayer, and we're very richly benefited by people that's done that for us. But can you imagine having the Apostle Paul to pray for you? That's what we're going to be seeing here. He tells them that he bowed the knee before God to pray for them, and then he tells us what he prayed for. And that's what caught my attention here. Uh, a couple months ago or so, when I sat down and began to look at this and try to, to pick out the details of that prayer that would help me in some way, and I saw what he prayed for, and that touched my heart. And I said, now that's what we all need. He knew that church needed it, and I realized that we all need the same sort of things that the Apostle Paul was praying for this church at Ephesus. So let's look at that together. If you found your place there in Ephesians chapter 3, Notice the verses uh, 13 to 15, and we'll go on after that in just a moment, but take the verses 13 to 15 with you uh, in your Bible with me, if you will, please. Uh, beginning in verse 13, Ephesians 3, 13. Wherefore, I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Would you pray with me, please, before we get into this? Heavenly Father, this is a, a wonderful part of this passage here that talks about the, the closed closet time in the Apostle Paul's life when he shut himself away to pray for his friends. And he prayed for this church there at Ephesus. We're going to see in a moment what he prayed for and how he prayed for these people. And we pray that, Father, you'll speak to our hearts tonight and help us to see how much we need those same exact things in our lives that he prayed for, for them there in that church. So speak to us through this example of the Apostle Paul, we pray. In Jesus' lovely name, amen. amen. Wherefore I desire, he said in verse 13, that ye faint not at my tribulations. He says, I'm going through a hard time. And by the way, <clears throat> this book of uh, Ephesians is the first of what is called Paul's prison epistles. When he talks about tribulations and trials, he was in prison when he wrote this. 
And this was the first of his prison epistles. There's others like Philippians and Colossians and Philemon were all written from prison. So when Paul says he was going through tribulations and trials, he was not talking about just having a hard day. He was in prison. And their prisons were not like our prisons around here today. They were not <clears throat> easy uh, places to live in by any stretch of the imagination. He was suffering in many ways, physically and morally, in every way. He was being put to the limit and put to the test to be in that prison. And like he says, I'm doing it for you, for your glory. I'm here for the sake of the gospel, the gospel that I shared with you, what I've tried to do for you, I've tried to do for others. And because of this, I'm here in this prison. He didn't mind that. He was happy to do that for the gospel's sake. But because of that, in verse 14, he says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. He says, because I'm here for you, because of you, for you, for the gospel's sake, I want you to know that I'm doing it for a reason, a very good, real reason. And so he goes on there and saying, I bow the knee before God. There's that song, that's such a beautiful song, bow the knee. That's what Paul is speaking of here in this passage, to bow the knee before God the Father. For these people, he's praying for them. He's going through hard times. He's in uh, a prison. We might as well call it a dungeon. It was nothing better than that. And yet he was bowing the knee there in that dark place for the people of this church. And then he goes on. And we notice, for example, in verse 16, he begins verse 16 with the word that. And I noticed here in this passage that four times he mentions the word that. He says, I'm here in this place. I'm going through these tribulations. I don't want you to feel bad for me because I'm bowing the knee before God for you that you might have this and then that you might have something else. And four times he mentions four things that he's praying for them to have. So notice verse 16, if you will. Verse 16, he says, I'm praying to God in spite of my tribulations for you because I love you. Verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. So he said, the first thing I'm praying for, for you there in the church at Ephesus, from my prison cell here where I am, I'm praying that God would grant you the ability to be strengthened. I'm praying that God would strengthen you. That's what he says in that verse 16, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Paul wanted them to be strong. I'm praying that you might be strengthened, he said. Paul knew that they would need strength. Persecutions had already begun against Christians all across the country. It wasn't just him. He knew this was happening, and he could feel in his heart, he could see in his mind that these things were going to increase, and it did. The persecutions increased more and more throughout several countries, not just in Israel, but everywhere that Christians were to be found. Paul knew that they were going to suffer for the gospel. Nero was moving onto the scene, soon to come onto the scene. When people would be killed, Christians would be killed literally by the thousands and uh, in such atrocious ways. Persecutions would come, and he says, I'm praying that God would strengthen you. Oh, how we need that. We need that strength today. We're facing a day and a time. We've lived in such ease and such Christian luxury through the years when Christians and the church and the Bible were all looked up to by even lost people. But that's been a thing of the past for quite some time now. We're not seeing that happen in our country today the way it once was. We're needing to have strength in the Lord 
in the Holy Spirit of God in our hearts and lives more than ever before as we look at what's happening in the world. If it was changing for Paul back in those days, what would Paul say if he saw the way it was today? Even though there's a lot of churches and a lot of church members and a lot of true born-again believers, still we see the opposition and the, the things happening against Christianity today like we've never seen it before in our lifetime. Those of us that have lived a little while can look around and see that the world has changed drastically in the last 20 or 30 years. We don't have to go back 60 and 70 years to see the differences between them and now. We can just go back 15 or 20 years and see radical, extreme differences between the way it used to be and the way it is now as the way the public and the people and the world, the media and all the rest looks upon Christians. And oh, how we do need that strength that Paul was praying for. He said, you're going to need that strength. When King David was dying, and he called his son Solomon in to be with him, and, and uh, several years ago, I haven't uh, brought that message out and preached it many years, but I had a message on 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse 2 where David is speaking to Solomon, and some of the very last counsel and advice that he had to give his son Solomon before he passed away, he said this to his son Solomon. He says, I go the way of all the earth. Be thou strong, therefore, and show thyself a man. He said, Solomon, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. I'm about to die. My time is about up. I'm about to leave. But, but when I go, therefore, you must be strong, therefore, and show thyself a man. That's just another way of saying, Solomon, you've got to be a man. You've got to be strong, and you've got to be a man. And this was the advice that King David gave his son Solomon on his deathbed. Solomon, you've got to show yourself strong and be a man. Not necessarily a man in the eyes of the world, but a man before God, that's strong before God, that knows how to live for God and stand for God in spite of the persecutions and the things coming. Paul knew that was true for the church at Ephesus, and we know that's true for us today. We need that strength. We need the strength of God to stand today, to do like David told Solomon, to show ourselves strong, therefore, and be a man and stand up before the things. It doesn't mean you're out in, in a fight all the time. It doesn't mean you're out looking for trouble. It just means that you're, you're going to stand your ground. If somebody says, are you a Christian? You're going to say, yes, sir, I sure am. <laughs> and you're going to stand your ground and, <clears throat> and live for God and, and love what you're doing for God. We all need courage and strength in this world in which we live today. And we can see that it's no doubt going to get worse as we think about our children and our grandchildren and those that will be here longer than, than I will be, that are just in their early days of their lives, that will have a lot of years ahead of them, Lord willing, where they're going to see these changes get even worse and worse and going on farther down the road than what they already have. So where does that strength come from when he just told us in verse 16? It comes from the Holy Spirit. He says that you would be strong, strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, by his spirit. You know, uh, we do need that. Samson, for example, was strong in the flesh and weak in the spirit. But the Bible says that Gideon was just a little guy. He was not a big, strong, strapping fellow like Samson, but he was small physically, but he was strong in the Lord. Samson was a, a big powerhouse physically, but he was weak in the things of God. Gideon was just the opposite, a small guy, but he was big and strong in the things of God. And that's the kind of person that God is looking for today in you and me, that we'll not necessarily think that we're big and strong because of the physical side of things, but because of the spiritual side of things. Yes, that he would grant you to be strengthened, Paul said. But let's go on to verse 17. 
He says that word that again, verse 17. He's praying that you would be strengthened. And then verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. We'll go on later with the second half of verse 17. But he says that ye being rooted and grounded in love. We'll see that in a moment. The first half of verse 17, he's also saying that I'm praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Now, this is more than just the receiving Christ in salvation. He's not just saying here, I want you to be saved. He's talking to the church that was at Ephesus. There's more to it than just salvation. He wants us to have a whole lot more than salvation. Now, I believe the key word in that part of that verse 17 is that word dwell. When I saw that word dwell, I felt like that was the hinge to that phrase. When he said, I'm praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. I felt like that word dwell had something to teach us. So I looked it up, and you know how the New Testament was written basically in Greek, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but I can open the book and look things up. And I found that that word dwell is the word oikos, oikos, or oikeo, actually, but oikeo. That's the word, and it means to dwell or inhabit and to live in one's abode. But that's not the word that's used here. It's a word that is derivative of that word. The word that is used here in that verse is the word katoikeo. Katoikeo, you can see I'm not good at that. Katoikeo, and that's based upon that same word, but with the word kato placed in front of it. Uh, and the two of them together means to dwell, but to settle down in a dwelling, to live there, to fix yourself there. It's not just to live in a dwelling, but to settle in, to settle down in a dwelling, to dwell fixedly in a place, or if you wish, to put down roots in a place. So it's not just to dwell or live in a place, but it's to put down roots and to dwell fixedly, to settle down in a dwelling. And that's what he says, I'm praying for Christ to be able to do in your heart. And that word dwell, that was the word. He could have used just the word oikeo, but he used the word katoikeo. God did, not just Paul, but God wanted that word chosen. So it would show the significance that he wants Christ to not just live in our hearts and lives, but he wants Christ to be able to settle down, put down roots, to live fixedly in our hearts and lives. He's not just an occasional guest passing through. He's just not somebody that comes along once in a while or, or lives in a back room somewhere. He wants Christ to be able to come in and put down roots and live fixedly in our hearts and lives. That's the difference between those two words, and that's why God chose that word in that verse for us to see the importance of letting Christ come in and put down roots in our lives, to live fixedly in our lives, to live in the heart of our lives, and, and to not just have a guest room off to the side where we just see him once in a while. Just recently, I heard a, a song. I don't know if it would be, I guess, probably more of a bluegrass gospel type song. And I just like that one little phrase. And I, when I heard it, I mentioned it to my wife. I said, I like the way they said that. And my wife can especially, especially understand this little bit of a song because of the way she was raised. It fit her upbringing, her raising perfectly. The song said this, I wouldn't take a million dollars for the way that I was raised in the house that daddy built and the home that mama made. There's a lot of good thoughts in that simple little phrase. I wouldn't take a million dollars for the way that I was raised in the house that daddy built and the home that mama made. Daddy can build a house, but only mama can make a home out of it. 
And this is what we're talking about. That's when you're in a home like that, like my wife was raised that way. Her dad built her house. And you can't find a, a better homemaker than not in the fancy, frilly things, but just in, in saturating that home with love like her mama did. And when you were ever able to experience that place and those people and that thing, then you know what it meant to be in a place where love had just moved in and settled down and lived fixedly. You were really going home when you went to that home there. You were really going home because mama was there. There was a love that was there. There was something special that was there. And that's what he's telling us here, that he wants Christ to be able to do in your heart and mind to move in and to put down roots and to live fixedly, not just transiently, not just passing through, but to have the first place, the premier place in your heart, in your life, and in your personal life in every way. He wants to settle down in your heart and your life. That's the difference between a hotel room and your own home. When you're traveling and on the road, you're, you're glad to have a decent hotel room to stay in when you're traveling. You, you want to have a nice place as far as just being there for a night or two, or if you're on vacations, maybe for a week or two. But you want to have a place that's decent enough, but you, know, you don't want to stay there. Even the nicest of hotel rooms is not a place where you, where you want to spend the rest of your life. Even a nice hotel room, you don't want to spend the rest of your life there. You want to go home eventually. And when your time there is over and when you're traveling and on the road, there's something special about pulling back into the driveway of your own house and going through the door of your own home because there's something special there. And that's what Christ wants in your heart and your life. He says, I'm praying there in that verse that Christ may dwell fixedly in your hearts by faith. Not just be transient, not just have him pushed off to the side in a guest room, but that he might be in the central place. That was one of the prayers that he had, that Christ does not want to be an occasional visitor, but he wants to be in the central place of your heart and your home. Well, let's notice verses 17 and 18, the other half of verse 17, and then verse 18. Notice that in verse 17, the second half, he says, that, there's again the third that, I'm praying that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. We'll go on with the rest of that verse in a moment. But he says that third time, he says, I'm praying for something for you. I'm praying that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height and to know the love of Christ. So I'm praying that you might be rooted and grounded in love. That was the third thing that he asked for those people there in that church at Ephesus. He didn't want them to have a shallow faith. You don't have a shallow faith when you have a faith that is rooted and grounded. Rooted and grounded means you're putting down your own roots. You're putting down your own roots in your own Christian life. It's not a matter of just what Christ has in you, but it has of what you have in your own heart when it comes to Christ himself and how to live for him and serve him. Rooted and grounded goes deeper than what we see for so many people around us. It's more than your typical Sunday morning only type of Christian. And every church that I know, uh, anywhere you want to go today, has a much bigger crowd on Sunday morning than any other time during the week because we have so many Sunday morning only Christians. We have so many people, and we've known them, we know them right now, people that will show up on Sunday morning and you'll never see them again until next Sunday morning. There's not anything else that you can do during the week that will ever cause them to, to get out of their house and come back to church again. You can't draw them out with the 
a hook in the, or a magnet or an anvil or anything else. You just can't get them out <laughs> because uh, there's just a difference there in their Christian lives. They are not rooted and grounded in the things of God. There's something missing. Uh, you know, something that is rooted and grounded it puts down roots and it stays put. The wind and the storms can blow away things that don't have good roots, that are not well grounded. And something else is something that's not well rooted and grounded doesn't produce the same fruit as a plant that's put those roots down in the ground and brings up the nourishment and the things, the nutrients and things from the ground that it needs to make things grow. And so the things that have a good root system are the things that can produce the better crop and the things in our gardens and in our fields. I see that all the time when I go certain directions to go to church, whether I'm preaching here or there or someplace, and I, I'll go by a golf course, and I see people on Sunday morning out there worshiping the God of the, the golf course. And I'll go across a bridge over the river or across a lake, and, and I'll see people out there worshiping the God of the lake. And I don't get angry with those people. I'm not mad at those people. I'm so sorry for those people because they can't seem to realize what they're missing. And many of those people, a big portion of them, no doubt, are church members somewhere, but they're not rooted. Their roots don't go deep. Their faith doesn't go deep. Their Christianity doesn't go deep. It's a shallow Christianity. It's a shallow faith. It's a shallow way of practicing. He says here, I'm praying that you be rooted and grounded in love for the Savior that died for you, that our roots in Christ might go deep and hold us solid, hold us strong when the winds blow and produce fruit along the way. I was reading the story that happened over in India years ago, back when England was uh, fighting to try to keep their colonies there in India, when India was a British colony, and they were having all those terrible uh, civil warfares there toward the end when England was trying to keep it, and India was trying to get free. And there was a time when there was a, a large battle going on in one place, and the, the British army was being hard-pressed. They were really struggling to have enough men to hold their own in a, a large battle over in one area. And they had a, a number of soldiers that had already been through a really bad battle over in another area, and they sent a couple doctors in there to, to round up all the men that were available from this place that had calmed down now to bring those soldiers over to the other place to reinforce the soldiers that were fighting over there. They had to find all the men that were able-bodied that could still fight and help out in that other battle still going on. And the doctors were going through, and they were saying, no, this fellow can't fight. He, he's too seriously wounded. This fellow can't fight. They were taking all the able-bodied men and all the men that were wounded but still able to fight up to a certain degree. And the doctor came by the bed of this young soldier, this young British soldier, and he was looking at him to see if he was going to be able to go back and join his other colleagues in, in these battles. And, and that young fellow, with a sense of duty, with a sense of of patriotism, looked up to that doctor, and here's what he said from that story I read. He said this to the doctor. This young fellow said, Oh, please, sir, don't say I am not fit for duty. It's only a touch of fever, and the sound of the bugle will make me well. Now, that's devotion. For a cause that maybe we can or cannot understand, it doesn't matter. But that young soldier believed that he was fighting for a cause. He respected his uniform. He respected his flag. He respected his officers. And so when that doctor came by and was going to say, well, maybe this fellow's too sick. He can't go. He needs to stay here. That's what he said. That's what he said. Now, that touched me that he would say, oh, please, sir, don't say I'm not fit for duty. 
It's only a touch of the fever. And then that phrase that he said, the sound of the bugle will make me well. But God sounds the bugle day after day after day in our country. And people are not responding. And God sounds the bugle for Christians to march off to war, for Christians to march off to the front lines today and to serve God. Christians are either standing there with their fingers in the ear or stuffing cotton in their ears or turning a deaf ear looking the other way. But we need Christians that will march off to the front lines. And that doesn't mean that you have to go out and get in a fight every day. That's not hard to do nowadays. It seems like I've never seen a time in, the, in my life when Americans were so grumpy and just so irritable and looking for a fight. Uh, road rage and all the rest has escalated like I've never seen before in my life. We're not talking about fighting like that. We're just talking about Christians that will love this old book and love God, that love the Savior and stand for this book and stand for Christ and love the church and be faithful to the church and work for the church, work for God and, and just serve Him. Just simply do the things that, that were normal, everyday things to do for generations and generations that's become more and more rare today in the Christian life. And I realize I'm saying this to the Wednesday night crowd. I'm not saying that to deride the, the Wednesday night crowd because the Wednesday night crowd is my favorite crowd. I always look at the Wednesday night crowd as my favorite people because they're the ones that are there on a Wednesday night when it no doubt was not easy. There's been jobs, there's been work, there's been a lot of other things going on during the course of the day, but we're here together in God's house tonight. And I always appreciate and thank God for that Wednesday night crowd. They've always been a special people for me. And so as I think about this tonight, it's just a, a lesson that Paul was saying to the church at Ephesus. And I don't think that they were especially guilty that Paul said you still need to be able to do this, to put down your roots, be well-rooted and grounded in love for Christ. But we'll close as we look at verse 19, that last fourth thing that Paul said. Verse 19, he said that fourth thing that he says, I'm praying for, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. He prayed that they would be full of God, just simply full of God, to be filled with all the fullness of God. So many times in my life, I realize that I've had somewhat of God in my heart, in my life. I was saved and trying to live for him and do the right things and act the right way and say the right things, do the right things. But I know when I'm not so close to God is all that. And I'll know in my heart when I stop and look in a mirror and stop and think about it or just stop and try to pray and get before God in a moment of prayer. I'll know in my own heart how close I really am to him and how far I've gotten away from him. And I'll realize that I'm not very full of him at certain times in my life. There are times when I look in my own heart and I realize that I'm pretty much running on empty. Oh, not that I, my salvation is in jeopardy and not that, that he's taken himself away from me, but I'm not full of God the way Paul is talking about for the church here. They were saved and in church and enduring certain persecutions, and he knew all that. He said, I want you to be filled with all the fullness of God. And that's what he wants for us, what God wants for you and me that we might be just so full of him that there's no place for anything else. That doesn't mean you can't go play around the golf. It doesn't mean you can't go fishing. It doesn't mean you can't have a, a good time. We're not talking about throwing everything out of our lives that's not strictly nothing but of God. It just means that we have nothing that will take any place 
in our hearts and in our lives that God ought to have. That God ought to have. That nothing will be higher in our hearts and lives than God himself. You know, they have a law in France, and as far as I know, that law is still on the books, that this was established many years ago, hundreds of years ago, I don't know how far back, two or three hundred years at least or more, that the Catholic Church had such power and influence in the government of France back in those days, many years ago, and that's why the law is still in the books today. They probably couldn't pass this law today, but they did back then, and it's still there. And the law is simply this, that any town and village, there's around, uh, I think, was it around 37, 38,000 towns and villages in France, from the smallest little village of 20 or 30 people all the way up to Paris with its 5 or 10 million. You know, Paris is 5 million and another 5 million around Paris, so a 10 million agglomerate. But there's a law that says there's not a single town or village in France that has a right for any building in town to ever be taller than the height of the Catholic Church's steeple. That's a law. That nobody has a right ever to build a building in any town in France with a building that is taller than the steeple of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church wanted that steeple to always be taller than anything else in town, visible for anywhere else in town, for everybody to be able to see it and know that it dominates. There was a time when it did, far more than today. But that's why they did that years ago, was a symbolic image that that steeple and that church dominates this town. That was the power the church had <clears throat> over the people those many years ago. And you can still notice that if you ever think about it, when you see pictures of, of towns and villages throughout France, that uh, they... You, you always see that they always have their steeple sticking up above the town. You'll see the town laid out across like that, and you'll see the steeple sticking up over here, sometimes another one on another side of town. And this is why when they started building Paris with all these skyscrapers, that uh, <clears throat> they had to build the skyscrapers actually just on the outside edge of, paper, uh, of Paris, the bigger skyscrapers went beyond uh, Notre Dame and went beyond the other cathedrals and churches that were there, they had to build them just on the bare outside edge, on the outside of the Paris city limits because they were taller than the Cathedral of Notre Dame and taller than a couple of other cathedrals that they had there. And so they had to build them just barely outside in a place where they didn't have to worry about uh, that relationship to the church. It, it affected their society in such a, a way that it's just incredible. And this is their way of looking at things. But what we need for you and me in our context, is like the Apostle Paul says here in that last verse that we just read, that Christ might be, we might be so filled with the, the fullness of God that there's just no other thing that can take a place that's predominant in our hearts and lives, can take first place in our hearts and lives. Nothing that can take his place, his rightful place. That's being full. It doesn't mean that that's the only thing you do in your life. You, you still have, go, go to the mountains and hunt and, and get, bring back all the venison you can this winter. Have a good time. But whatever you do, make sure that Christ still has that first place, that he stands head and shoulders above everything else that you have in your life, the fullness of God. That was one of the things he prayed for. And I'm not going to have you turn to it. I've not had you turn hardly at all tonight. But remember what the psalmist said. David said over in Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good because he told us there. I want you to, to see that you might be filled with all the fullness. And after he said all those four things, we're going to come to a close now. But as he said those four things, that you might 
have these four things I'm praying for, for you to have. Then he begins verse 20. He begins verse 20 of our text by saying, now, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for this and that and that and that, these four things. Now, after all that, now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Now, after all that, here's what it's all about, that he might receive all the glory. Do all those things. Now, unto him, unto him be all the glory. That's what he says there, like in verse 21. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all the ages, world without end, anywhere, any place, at all times, at all times, forever, of all the ages. May all these things be done. This prayer that I pray for you, that you might receive these four things, that, that he might get all the glory. And that's the reason why we ask those things for you and I tonight, that we might be able to see Paul's prayer fulfilled in your lives and, and mine tonight, that he, Jesus Christ, might receive all the glory. That's what it's all about. It's not that I might be more of a, be some kind of a robot just to be able to say he's pulling strings and I'm doing what he tells me. No, not at all. That my life might be of such that Jesus Christ might get all the glory. That was Paul's wish for the church at Ephesus. And I believe that if he, if he was here with us today, that would be his wish for us today. That we might receive these four things, that Christ might receive all the glory.